Hi, I'm Dave Liss, a DC-based consultant and journalist, your host for this series of podcasts, Wellness Musketeers, where we will discuss a wide range of topics in the fields of health, wellness, fitness, with some management and economics thrown in as well. In this episode, we are joined by our guest panelist, Greg LeBlanc, from the business schools at Stanford and Berkeley, where he teaches business economics, data science, and decision-making. He has also taught at Duke, UVA, and HEC Paris. Greg is the host of the podcast Unsiloed, a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. In each episode, Greg interviews a world-leading thinker, researcher, academic, economist, Nobel Prize winner, and other truly globally acclaimed thought leaders and authors. Greg will be interviewed by our co-host, Kettle Veeding. Kettle Veeding is one of the core members of the Wellness Musketeers team, economist by training and a professional with the IMF. He has been active in the wellness field for a number of years. Boring economist at the surface, a crazy guy within, as he would put it. Hi, welcome, Greg. It's very, very, very happy to have you here. I would like, before we start, I would like to note that I have known Greg for quite a few years now. Olsen is a common friend of ours who wanted to take a skiing on the top of the French glacier. You might know who I'm thinking of. I also like to note that Greg is probably the closest it gets to a true Renaissance man. Both in his quest for knowledge across disciplines, his sense of dialogue and sense of per physical pursuit as well. Pursuit. Skiing and polo. You didn't know. Greg is also, as you may have experienced, with this intro, an excellent cook, which I have benefited from quite a few times. So far, Greg has released 150 episodes since he launched his podcast 14 months ago. This amounts to releasing about three episodes a week. You also pride yourself to always read the books of the authors that you interview. Hidden in these facts is a mental processing achievement of gargantuan dimensions. How is this possible, Greg? This is actually something that I try to teach my MBA students and my, my law students, which is how do you expose yourself to the massive amounts of information that we have in the world today, and then compress it in a way that allows you to understand it and recall it whenever you need to extract some kind of insight, right? So it's about collecting frameworks, collecting, organizing principles, connected, collecting models of the world. And then when you observe the world or experience the world, figure out ways to identify which frameworks will help you understand the phenomenon. And so it's really, I like to think of it as compression algorithm, which it's about making yourself efficient in terms of the pursuit of knowledge. Oh, it's, that's very interesting. You state in your podcast, uh, you, you basically on the website that unsiloed is a series of in this interdisciplinary conversation that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. You also know that teaching philosophy, your teaching philosophy is built on the idea that knowledge is built on accumulation of multiple perspectives, stress tested by dialogue, discussion, and debate. It all sounds like a day in the life of Socrates, bumping into great authors in the town square. You might like that image, by the way, but you are a modern man after all. You must really have an agenda, don't you? 
<laughs> well, you know, I, I was reading Plato at a very young age. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could, in fact, walk down to the town square and bump into all these, these people? It actually requires a little bit more, more work than that. Even universities are not the, the places that I thought they would be when I was growing up. I thought, when I go to a university, I'm going to walk down the hallways of the building and run into all these smart people from all these different domains and, and stir up all these wonderful conversations. But even in universities, people are very, are very specialized. They're very dedicated to the pursuit of something narrow for the most part. They have KPIs that they have to pursue. They have publications that they have to get out and they have kind of tenure that they have to have to chase after. So even in, in the places where you would think you might find the most, I don't know, fertile discussions, it, it's sometimes a little bit difficult. You have to bring it out. You have to tease it out. And so I, I think the idea of interdisciplinarity is really getting people to, I guess, emerge from their foxholes and, and dip their toes in other foxholes. And so a lot of the authors that I bring onto the podcast are, are folks that I, I think have, have, have done that to some degree, you know, that they've, they've looked at issues from a couple different perspectives and found insight in, in the gaps, found insight by maybe looking at history from an economic lens or looking at anthropology from a philosophical lens, or maybe looking at uh, law from a literary criticism lens. And, and it's those it's the accumulation of those perspectives that, that helps you to, I think, I think find insight. And you know, one of the dangers that we always fall into is you've got a, got a perspective, got a way of looking at things and it's comfortable, you know, it's super easy and comfortable to consult that template, that template, which has guided us so well, having one Google map that helps us to get from, you know, point A to point B. And so I, I think that it's difficult to resist the, the temptation to fall into that kind of unity of perspective, which is very comfortable. So if I have an agenda, my agenda is to stir that up, help people to find comfort in discomfort, help people to shed their skin and, and, and look for new skins and get them out of the place where they're standing and look at the same phenomenon from a different place, from a different side of the issue, maybe a different side of the academic discipline. That's really my agenda to stir the, stir the pot a little bit and, and get people thinking. But I think you're skirting my question a little bit because how do you decide which books to pick up? That's a great question. I've been a book collector since I was very, not, I'm not a collector in the sense that I don't really go after first editions or any of that kind of nonsense, but I've been spending most of my disposable income on books since I was very young. When I was in, in college, I would eat potatoes and, and then go buy books. And so I've always had huge piles of books around me. And how do I find out about the books? That's a great question. Whether it's TLS or New York Review of Books or the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal or New York Times, or a lot of times people reference other people in the books, but, but I'm, I'm always looking for a, a book that is going to tell me something I don't already know. So it's, if I start reading a book and, and it starts sounding like something that I've already read before, then 
it, it bores me and I kind of want to move on and go find something else. So I'm always looking for things that are relatively fresh and, and, and new, but that seem grounded in a, a sense of curiosity and, and what I think of as research with integrity, people who are, who are deeply interested in discovering the, the truth rather than pursuing an agenda necessarily. If they have an agenda, the agenda flows from what they've learned rather than starting with the agenda, then working backwards. Maybe link to the question of Socrates. I noticed that your interviews are quite con consensual. Maybe it's not the right word, but uh, you're trying to get the author speak about their books on their terms. In very few cases, do you actually challenge them? Is there any room for maybe a little more of a Socratian <laughs> dialogue here? A few of your authors, at least one of the authors mentioned some of the great, uh, dialogues and, uh, maybe we can look forward to and sign of develop into some kind of virtual Socratian invention and a new space. Yeah. I had a couple of people comment that, that when they interact with me in, in, in real life, I'm, I'm a little more, <laughs> a little more. I, I can testify to that. Uh, you, you stick with the position and uh, in order to convince you, either I have to get you so drunk, which is very hard that you cannot give in that way, or I need to spend like, pretty much a whole night trying to argue against you or common friends have been trying. I'm generally been giving up. It's a fair, it's a fair question. In fact, when I first thought of doing a podcast, it was probably about over 20 years ago. And I remember thinking that the people who are dominant in the space, right? Charlie Rose and NPR interviewers, Terry Gross and so forth, that they, they didn't really call someone out when they said something that was, didn't make any sense. And, and so I thought. Hey, if I ever have a podcast, like I'm going to call people out if they don't seem to make any sense. But one of the things is that I've selected authors that I think on the whole make, make a lot of sense. But the other thing is that when I read a book, there's lots of things in the book that I find maybe less well supported than other things, but I've never read a book in my life that I didn't get something out of. I've never read a book where I didn't learn something. Okay. And usually when I'm reading a book or when I'm watching a movie or something, I'm, or going to a lecture, I'm always asking, you know, what can, what can I learn from this? What can I get out of this? What insight is here? And so sometimes I'll be sitting through a lecture and I'll be like, okay, nothing is probably wrong. This is probably wrong. This is, you know, dubious, et cetera. And then they'll say something and I'll be like, oh, that's something that I can learn from. Right. And even when people are saying things that are incorrect or dubious, I, I, I think, okay, well, I can learn something there too. So I'm usually when I'm interviewing the authors, I'm, I'm thinking about the things that I've learned from them or the things that I find insightful. So I try to emphasize that now when they do say something or that I think is a little dubious, my way of dealing with it is to maybe raise a bit of doubt and maybe put that little grain in the oyster mm. and let the listener allow the pearl-like substance to accumulate around that little grain or 
put the little pebble in the shoe and, and let the, the listener experience a little bit of discomfort. Because at the end of the day, all of these authors, I would love to have much longer conversations with where we could kind of jointly create some kind of new insight, but given the, the time constraints, what can we learn from this author? What are the most insightful things that, that are embedded in the works that they've published? So maybe turn back again to the agenda issue. It, it seems to me that at least the space of kind of topics of the books that you're covering goes for several categories. One is very close to actually what you're teaching. So clearly related to business in some way or another, data science, for instance. But then there is a whole group of them and actually quite large group, which is more in the space that we are focusing on wellness space. Though that's of course very ill-defined. The wellness is super ill-defined, but again, there, it seems like it's maybe more personal as well. Yeah. So, so my question is, what are you looking for there? I don't think of there being a dichotomy there. When I teach business strategy, for instance, a lot of times I end the class by talking about how everything we learned about business strategy can be applied to career strategy or to personal strategy. And I don't generally see this big dichotomy between the sort of business side of your existence or the professional side of your existence and the personal side of your existence. I'm really super interested in the cultivation of what I call kind of virtue. And I think of that from a personal perspective, but I also think of that from an organizational perspective, if there is such a thing. And ultimately that comes from traits like curiosity and a desire for kind of versatility and flexibility of, of mindset. And if, if there's a unifying principle of all of the podcasts, it's really about this cultivation of an intellectual virtue. And I think that intellectual virtue is at the heart of concept of wellness, right? So you know, if you think about Aristotle's original conception of eudaimonia, which is essentially happiness, it's a type of happiness. It's I, a lot of the podcasts that I've had and a bunch that I've recorded and haven't released yet are really focusing on this concept of, of, of happiness. And by happiness, we don't mean just enjoying the good life <laughs> that, that Americans think of as the good life, but really what does it mean to be a virtuous person? And I, and I think that the life of the intellect is a big part of what it means to be a, a, a virtuous person, the pursuit of truth and beauty and, and goodness. And maybe I'm probably emphasizing the, the truth piece more than the other two. And I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time on those other two in order to have a fully well-rounded interdisciplinary program. But I, I really do think of all these things as about how do you cultivate this sense of intellectual virtue? The, the quest for truth can be somewhat disquieting sometimes. Absolutely. Right. Comfort in the conventional sense is not what I'm after because comfort is a trap. Comfort is a Comfort, a lot of the folks that I talk to are evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology. As an organism, we're all trying to conserve our 
energy usage and thinking is work. And when you look at people who are working out in the gym, what, what are they doing? They're expending a ton of energy and it's unnatural in a way, but by learning how to really enjoy that kind of energy expenditure. And once you get in the habit of it, people find that not exercising, if you become a habitual exerciser and then you don't exercise, you feel off, you feel uncomfortable. So how do we make conventional comfort uncomfortable? And how do you make it so that the, the state of, of, of continual searching or seeking is your comfort zone? I remember hearing people say that they didn't like to wear ties or in the East coast, we used to all wear ties, jackets, or people say, oh, I don't like to wear ties. because it makes me uncomfortable as if there's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of platonic sense of comfort that involves loose necks. And it's just not true because if you wear a tie every day, then you feel uncomfortable when you're not wearing a tie. And so, you know, how do we make it so that the, the life of the mind, the life of, of thinking and questioning it and seeking and searching, that's like your comfort zone. And if you're not doing it, you, you feel like something's off, right? If you're just getting lazy and you're, and, and you're not using your brain and, and you're just reaching for these robotic responses and you're on a kind of mental autopilot. Like, how do we make it so that you feel uncomfortable? You feel inauthentic. You feel insincere. You feel like you're lacking integrity in some way. That's kind of part of my goal. Maybe this is even linked to uh, some of the books that you've been covering on the physical world as well, because, uh, think about trying to kill all the the germs in the body is uh, good, quiet things down, but it will also kill you. And we have to live with, we, uh, and the same with the allergens. We do have to get used and live with things that make us, that put, potentially make us allergic. And then to the extent we remove ourselves from exposure, there also is a dead end. So the quiet, conflictless lie, both in physical and intellectual terms, and it's a dead end. You agree? Yeah. You said physical. I thought you said fiscal. No. It's like, wait, hold on. <laughs> you got this. You know, you know I, I was putting on my economist hat. Suddenly. Exactly. But there actually is a connection there. Right? There's a connection there. Yeah. I, you know, when I teach in my classes at, at business school, you learn that the, in the first week that the answer to every question is, it depends. In fact, my, my students have, have given me these mugs that say it depends on them and they've he actually gave me a red button with my recorded voice saying it depends. And so every time when I was doing my online classes, I would just hit that button like Jim Cramer to create a sound effect. But that's, if you really embrace the, the economic way of thinking, you learn that, 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 that everything does de depend now, what that sentence means, of course, is that the you know, application of any individual model requires some inputs, but it also, what it means is that you should be suspicious of any kind of monotonicity in a claim. So if someone says, Hey, drinking is bad. It's like, all right, that may be a great conclusion at the end of the day, but I, I want to hear all the arguments in favor of drinking and all the arguments against drinking before we move to any kind of 
rule. And starting with the assumption that we're probably going to be able to find arguments on both sides, which means that there's probably going to be some, some trade-offs, right? Uh, and then under, if we understand those trade-offs, then we can figure out, okay, where's the optimal amount here? And when we think about, oh, bacteria is bad. Okay. I'm immediately, my radar goes up and says, okay, there's something wrong here. Or even if somebody says pain is bad, hold on. Let's, I'm suspicious here too. There's got to be an upside to pain or poverty is bad. Hold on. Like maybe there's not, if you make it a habit of always, before I even get a sentence out of my mouth, I've got part of my brain that's already trying to figure out what is wrong with what I just said. You know, like, and so it, it makes it difficult sometimes to be bombastic and uh, to, to, to be provocative, but it, it also makes you a difficult person within an organization. So we had a meeting of the faculty just a week ago and the administrator came out and said, okay, here's what we're going to, we've made a decision. We're going to do this and here are all the arguments in favor. And I'm just thinking in my brain, what are all the arguments against? And their view, they're thinking, since we've already made the decision, there's really no point in telling anybody any of the counter arguments. Let's just, cause now we're in sales mode. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to push this. Stand up in the town hall and say this, or did you just think it? No, I just, I've. So you, I, you're not, you, you're not <laughs> as crazy as some other person, I think. Well, look, I did that for 10 years and then I realized that it just made enemies. So I just I've learned to be a, be a team player. Just to say that, you know, you know. And, and but, but, but the point is like, even if I'm suspicious of their judgment, simply because they did not start off by saying, here are the arguments in favor, here are the arguments against, we weighed them and we came out in favor. And that's what I tell my students whenever I say, okay, so what should, you know, what should this company do? And they're like, they should do this. And I'm like, time out. Okay. Got this backwards. You started with the conclusion and then you're going to give me the arguments in favor or of your conclusion. I'm always more convinced if you say, okay, we should do the thing which gives us the following result. And then here are the different approaches or here are the different reasons why we should do this or not do this. And then after you input the data, we come to this conclusion. So like a conclusion without a transparent thought process behind it to me is just worthless. I need to see the, I need to see how the argument is constructed. And, and one of the big things that I teach all my students is like, most people will conceal the steps that lead to the conclusion, not just when they are arguing with other people, when they're arguing with themselves. And by concealing the links in the argumentative chain, what they're doing is they are covering over any kind of weaknesses. And so they're covering it over primarily because they don't want to have to deal with it. It's not just that they don't want other people to point them out, but they themselves don't want to have to deal with it. And, and this is. This to me is crazy. Would you ever go and into the boxing ring without having had a bunch of sparring partners do their best to beat the crap out of you, right? And yet people do this all the time when they go into discussions. And, and I've seen this happen with PhD students that go on the job market and their advisors and mentors failed to expose the weaknesses in their arguments and, and their classmates failed to expose the weaknesses in their arguments, and then they just get ripped to pieces when they're out there on the job market.
It's very good. I think we could continue the whole, you know, the whole day talking about these subjects. I, I think what we should do, we probably should end it quite soon, but, and also to agree on meeting again later this year to wrap up, you know, more on your kind of experiences, the interviews that you're doing, because I do think there's an enormous amount of very good material here that I think uh, our audience can really benefit from. Uh, I'm also looking forward to your next book. Maybe you, you should call it It Depends. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that title set will sell that well, though. Oh. My students uh, will buy it. I, I, sure, but <laughs> a captive audience. Hey, before we end, what do you think is the most important takeaway that you have gained so far in your you actually, you have published 150 podcasts, but you have actually recorded 250. Yeah, I, I give the word to you, the final word. What have I learned? Wow. What I've learned is that there are a lot of really thoughtful, smart, intelligent people out there. And it's really hard to remember that when we are exposed to the, the kind of stuff we hear in the public square. So it's easy to lose hope. <laughs> it's easy to lose faith in kind of the, the future of intellectual discourse because the public realm is one where good quality intellectual discourse is not rewarded. We live in a world of clickbait and we live in a world of Twitter bombast and uh, and it's hard to remember that there are these super smart people that are thinking very seriously about important issues of science and philosophy and the good life. And, uh, and for me, the good life is one that has at its center, the, the pursuit of those things we talked about, truth, beauty, and goodness. And uh, anything I can do through the podcast, remind people that this is a legitimate pursuit is, uh, is if I, if I do anything to move the needle in that direction, then I, I think I've done my job. Thanks a lot, Craig. Of course, I told you that you're going to have the last word, but you didn't. I lied, of course. Been a great pleasure talking to you. I, I would end off with making a pitch for you, your podcast series, because it's an enormous amount of material on exactly what you're saying, on very smart people who've been thinking very hard about uh, some subjects in the academic environment and going the extra mile of actually putting out the book there. They don't generally don't need that. It, you know, in academia, it's articles that pays off, published articles, but actually publishing a book and bring it out to the public. And this podcast series is helping us having access to this. And so in order to listen to this, and I really hope that uh, we can bring this audience to increase man manifold around the world, is just to type in unsiloed, U-N-S-I-L-O-E-D, and then it will come a podcast, of course. So instead of actually going back to the Socratist times, this is a, a good second for the modern man and woman, girl and boy. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> we appreciate your joining us, Greg. 
Be sure to listen to Unsiloed. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world, available on Apple, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. And thank you for joining us for Wellness Musketeers. Tune in for upcoming episodes to learn from global health leaders and trend-setting authors to gain tools to improve your life, your health, your work performance, and enjoy a more balanced quality of life. Please subscribe, give us a five-star review, share this recording with your family, friends, and colleagues. Let us know what you need to learn to help you live your best life. Send your questions and ideas for future episodes to Dave Liss at davidmliss at gmail.com.